Well, thank you. I've been looking forward to being with you. Had a delightful time in the 845 service and looking forward to, to sharing the Word of, of God with you this, uh, this morning. Uh, we do appreciate the support of, uh, of your church. Christian Camping International is an alliance of 23 associations of Christian camps throughout the world. We have, we have groups in Russia, and we have groups in Brazil, and groups in the Philippines, and and throughout the, the world, in uh, 61 countries, we train about 12,000 people a year. We enlist about uh, a quarter of a million volunteers each year and serve somewhere between 13 and 14 million campers and guests uh, around the world. So thank you for your part in allowing us to share the gospel and seeing so many uh, put their faith in Christ helping others grow in their, their spiritual walk with God and uh, giving us the opportunity to help train up and grow so many of the future leaders of, of our uh, Christian faith. So uh, we appreciate very much your support. This morning, I'd like to speak from the book of Romans. Now, during that one and a half second pause, many of you who have been around the Christian game for a while go, Romans, okay. I got it. We're going to be talking about some big words. We're going to probably talk depravity, a little justification, sanctification, maybe even get in a little dispensationalism. Uh, this is our theology text, Romans. Well, Romans is a book on theology. Uh, it has 11 chapters that lay out some really substantive uh, theological points. It's kind of the meat and potatoes of theology, but it also has chapters 12 through 15. Now, you can say, well, we have the meat and potatoes in 1 through 11, and we'll have a little dessert, you know, a little application at the end. A little application never hurt anybody too much, so we'll just make sure we get the, uh, the theology right, and then, you know, a little downstream application, that's okay too. Let me change the metaphor just a bit. Uh, we have some friends, we're in Tyler, Texas. We have some friends who are building a new home. Beautiful site, and last week they poured the foundation. They uh, cleared the area, they got it all framed up, and they poured lots and lots of concrete. It is uh, smooth and, and flat. It uh, is all leveled out, it's thick, it's solid, it's not going anywhere. It has a little, uh, Pipes that come up in the bathrooms and in the kitchen and where the washer and dryer are going to be. Everything is kind of laid out and it looks like it's going to work. And so they have decided they're just going to get sleeping bags and stay there on the foundation. Maybe they'll pitch a tent. Now, you know what the, the purpose of the foundation is to build something. The purpose of the foundation is to get the house up, to have it functional, to have it looking good and be attractive. All too often, we settle for the foundation. We get the foundation right, and we think that's enough. But what God wants us to do is to have a solid foundation. Hear me right, I'm not speaking against a solid foundation. That's critical. But it's not sufficient. What we need to do is to build beyond that. What we need to do is to create that structure that God wants on top. When you look at chapters 1 through 11, you have the theology, and Beginning in verse 12, or in chapter 12, the very first verse, the first word is therefore. 
The word therefore, in this context, basically means we've come to the end of the introduction. We are starting with the real. So maybe the metaphor, instead of meat and potatoes and dessert, a little better way to look at Romans is that chapters 1 through 11 are the chips and hot sauce. And when you get to chapter 12, you get the big enchilada, all right? This is what it's all about. We want the good foundation. We want a solid, firm, accurate foundation. But we want to grow from there. We want to build something. We want to have uh, a transformed life built on the firm foundation. You see, what we confess must be true. We want to have a true confession of what we believe. But that true confession must play itself out in godly character, in that transformation that God wants to work in our lives to make us more and more conform to the image of, image of his son. And that, in turn, needs to move to a healthy community, to where we as brothers and sisters in Christ can engage in one another's lives, where we can encourage and support one another. So, this morning, what I would like to, to look at is uh, two imperatives, too important to ignore, and they're found in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. And those two imperatives are rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. <clears throat> Sounds pretty simple. Sounds like, well, that's kind of a gimme. That's, a, that's an easy one. We'll just kind of laugh when people laugh. We'll kind of, you know, feel bad when people feel bad. And oh, let's go on to the next verse. I want us to take a little bit more time, I want us to bore down a little deeper and look at some of the challenges related to <clears throat> celebrating and weeping with, with one another and some of the benefits that come from that. We're going to look first at, at the rejoice with those who rejoice issue and see why we're hesitant to do that and then look at the mourn with those who mourn and see what causes us to resist that as well. And then we'll look at the positive side, the benefits of rejoicing with one another and the benefits of, uh, of this mourning and, uh, and entering into one another's sorrows. It looks easy, but it's pretty challenging. Uh, one of the things that's common around the world in most of our youth and children's camps is archery. Uh, one of those sports that, uh, you know, when you see it on television, every time they pull back the bow, you know, the arrow goes, and it's just who can get the most right in the middle of the bullseye. Uh, when you watch the Cowboys and Indians, the arrows always end up right where they're supposed to. Never an inaccurate shot. But when you try to do it, when you're out there with the bow in your hand and the arrow on the string, you pull it back and let it fly, there's no telling where that thing's going to end up. I mean, it can be in the dirt, it could be over the, over the target area, it could be anywhere. It looks easy, but when we try to do it, it's pretty challenging. So I want us to look at those challenges, and I want to look at the benefits of practice and the, the, uh, the tremendous results that can take place in our body as, uh, as we work to engage one another at these uh, moments of joy and of suffering. Jesus saw the importance of this and left us a great example. His first miracle was in John chapter 2. He goes to a wedding feast, and they're running low on wine. His mother gets him involved. And Jesus extends the celebration. He's there to celebrate and he makes more wine so the party can go on and on uninterrupted. Later on in his life, his friend Lazarus dies. And Jesus goes to Lazarus' funeral. 
And there, as he enters into the grief of Mary and Martha and the others, it says those two simple words, Jesus wept. Jesus engaged them in their pain. He was willing to, uh, to feel the emotions that they had and to empathize with them and experience their pain with them. So Jesus has given us the model of rejoicing with those who rejoice as well as the, uh, the difficult challenge of weeping and, or mourning with those who mourn. So let's look first of all at why this rejoicing thing is, is so difficult. First of all, it's because there's really just one spotlight and we want it on us, all right? We want to be the center of attention and when someone else is rejoicing, when someone else is celebrating, the attention is really upon them. And we're not all that excited about the spotlight moving off of us and moving on to them, we kind of want it on ourselves. Do you remember the Polish uh, scientist Copernicus? He was the first one that discovered the, the fact that within our solar system, it's not the earth that everything revolves around, it's the sun, and we all kind of make our circuits around, around the sun. Well, in reality, many of us and I need to have a, a personal Copernicum experience. We need to have a little revolution in our lives to recognize that the world doesn't revolve around us. We don't always belong in the spotlight. There are others that need that attention. John the Baptist understood this uh, in a very significant way. He talks about his relationship with Jesus, and he just talks about Jesus as the bridegroom and all of the excitement of, of a wedding and that imagery. And then he said, I must decrease and he must increase. I need to step out of the spotlight. I need to light, let the light shine on the one whose party is just beginning. The one whose life is now the center of, of the focus of the universe. We, I need to move away and I need to allow Jesus to be the center point of our discussion. Very similar to the advice given to the mother of the groom. Wear beige and keep your mouth shut. You know? At times we need to recognize that the spotlight's not on us. It needs to be on someone else. But more than that, it's the issue of comparison. Something good happens to our neighbor. They drive home in a brand new Lexus. A rich uncle that they didn't even know has died and left them a fortune and all of a sudden they have money for wonderful things and I'm looking at my 2003 Ford Focus and it doesn't look quite as good as it did before the Lexus came next door and so I get grumpy. So I get a little envious of what's next door. Why didn't I get that? Why don't I have a rich uncle? How come I'm driving? And we start to play this comparison game and we look at what someone else has and we get frustrated, we get angry, we become embittered. Why didn't I get that? I wish I had that. Whether it's a position or a, a possession, we want something that hasn't been entrusted to us. And so we become frustrated and angry. And instead of enjoying the blessing that God has bestowed on someone else, we let it eat at us and it becomes a point of bitterness in our life. We remember the story of, of Saul and David when they came home from the battle and the, <clears throat> the women of the city, they are singing the fight song and they're going, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his 10,000 and 
yippee, our team, and everybody is... Saul, instead of going, hey, I came in second, I got a thousand of them, and uh, that's pretty good, and you know what? I'm pretty good at hiring. My general over here killed 10,000 of them. That's a pretty good deal. I have been able to hire people who are more skilled and more competent, more gifted than I am. That's pretty good. I'm going to, David, thank you. You've made us all look good. He doesn't do that. He just becomes embittered. He begins this comparison game. Even though I did pretty well, I didn't do as well as David. And that makes me angry. So often, when someone else is celebrated, we feel diminished. We feel frustrated and angry. And we wish that was for us. There's a slight nuanced difference between the issue of envy and jealousy. In the case of the car, there's the issue of, of envy. But jealousy generally has a win-lose proposition to it. It's when we come to an opportunity within our work, there's a, a position that's open, a, a chance to be promoted to a vice president's job, and we're one of three finalists, we're one of two finalists, and Mary gets the job. So we become jealous because Mary got the one position that I wanted, and there's no other options. It's not that I could mortgage my house and go buy a Lexus and look like my friend. There's only one job. There's only one opportunity. Mary got it, and I didn't. Bill wants to ask Thelma Sue to the senior prom, but John asks her first, and Thelma Sue goes with him, and so I'm jealous that I didn't get that opportunity. There's only one option. Jealousy and envy, very similar, but, but slightly different. But they're both built on this issue of comparison. Somebody has something, and I want it, and I become very dissatisfied with my state in, in life. It's interesting, we never read of Jesus being an envious God, but often being a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. Because as God, he wants our affections. He doesn't want to share that with anyone else. There's only one place where we can put our worship and our adoration, and rightly, it belongs to God. And so he will become jealous of anything that takes his place within our lives. He doesn't become envious. He doesn't need anything to be happy or to be satisfied. He's God. But he does want our affections, and he is a jealous God. He doesn't want us to put that one thing we have, our worship and our adoration, anywhere but in him. So we don't always rejoice with those who rejoice. We want the spotlight on ourselves. We become frustrated or embittered because something good happened to someone else, and it didn't happen to us. Well, let's move on to look at uh, why... This issue of mourning is, is a challenge at time. The first thing is it's awkward. It's just, it doesn't feel comfortable to enter into the pain of someone else. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to engage the problem. We don't know how to fix it. So we just back away and we don't do anything. Uh, it was about 27 years ago, our, uh, our daughter, who was nine years old at the time, died of leukemia. It was a very painful and, and excruciating time in our lives. We, uh, we, were, we were struggling. And I remember one time we were at the grocery store a few weeks after she died, 
and we're kind of working our way down the Brookshire Isle there, trying to figure out where, what we were going to get, and looked at a, a, a couple, started to turn down our aisle, and I could just kind of see them, see us, and I kind of knew them, not well, and they darted into the frozen food area. You could tell they just didn't want to have to engage our pain and, and deal with us. They didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do, so they just kind of avoided the interaction. We're pretty good at that. We can try to miss the messiness and the, the pain of, our, of others' lives because we don't know how to respond. One of the first couples that came to our home after our, our daughter passed away was a uh, couple a little bit older than us. Uh, they brought a book, they brought a card, didn't have a whole lot to say other than that they, uh, they knew what we were going through because they did know they had lost a son a few years earlier. They just wanted to be there and to let us know that they cared about us and that they were, uh, wanted to be supportive of us. They were willing to put up with that awkwardness and the, uh, the unknown of how to relate and how to engage a person's lives. Uh, it is awkward, but we need to get past that. We need to recognize the importance we'll talk about in just, just a moment. But more than the awkwardness, it often costs us something. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Guy goes from Jericho to Jerusalem and he gets waylaid. He almost gets killed. He's robbed. He's laying there and people walk by. And finally, the Samaritan stops and <clears throat> puts himself in kind of a vulnerable position. Now, there could be bandits in the hills waiting for another robbery. Uh, he survives that and then he gets the guy on his donkey and he takes him to the inn and it costs him money. It takes time. It takes emotional engagement. It gets messy. Yet the Good Samaritan was willing to do that. It costs us things to engage in the painful moments of other people's lives. You remember the story in Acts 16. There's a little slave girl who is, is being used by these men. She is she is owned by men who are making their profits by her fortune-telling. She's demon-possessed, and the demon works through her to predict the future, and these men are charging money so that she will tell fortunes for the people who, who pay them. She's making a lot of money for these guys. They are living well because of the, the exploitation that they have for her as they traffic and use her in this inappropriate way. She is a slave to men. She's a slave to the demonic powers. And Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are together in Philippi, and every day they go to a prayer meeting, and they walk down, and they have to go right past this, this girl, and every day when they go past, she loves to torment them. And she starts yelling, hey, here are the servants of the Most High God, listen to these guys. Very derisive, very uh, uh, kind of caustic in her approach. She's humiliating them. She's kind of uh, angering them. And so they, you know, take that first strategy that we talked about, and they kind of said, we can ignore you longer than you can bother us. We, and so it said day after day, they walked to the place of prayer, passed this girl, never engaged her, just keep your head down, don't make eye contact, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And they got past her, and they went off to their time of prayer. It says day after day. It seems like this is a long time this process takes place. And finally, Paul is fed up. He turns. He casts the demons out of this girl. And now the money that these men have been making at this poor girl's expense 
is gone. They get upset. A riot breaks out. Paul and Silas get arrested. They end up beaten and in jail. They spend the night. It gets messy when we engage with the problems of the world around us. There's a price to be paid. It's costly. But as you remember, as Paul and Silas are singing that night, an earthquake comes and the jail doors fall open and they have an opportunity to share Christ with the Philippian jailer and and the gospel continues from there. We often hesitate to get involved in people's lives because it's awkward, we don't know what to do, and we know if I stop and talk, it's going to be a long time before I get get rid of this conversation. It's going to cost me something, some money, some time, some emotion, and we just don't want to invest ourselves in these problems. So it's easy to walk away and not engage in the, uh, the pain of other people's lives. So let's, so we've been on the negative side, let's flip it to a little more positive side. What are the great benefits of rejoicing with those who rejoice? <clears throat> what, are the, what are the things we're going to, to gain from this? Well, first of all, when we engage in someone else's joy, there's a multiplying factor that comes into play. We've gone going along on a steady eddy course and someone else is full of joy and celebration. And when we enter into their lives, we in turn have the benefit of that joy, that celebration, that, uh, that delight that is a part of their experience now becomes a part of ours. We live in a world that is dominated by negativity. You turn on the news and there's, there are story after story of pain and suffering and heartbreak and, and agony and anguish and it's just an ongoing litany of terrible, terrible things that are happening in our world. We are overwhelmed by the negative side and we need an opportunity to push back against that, to remember it, that Isaiah tells us The whole earth is filled with God's glory. We just don't look for it. We don't see it. And I'm not trying to create a Pollyanna-type experience, but we do need to look for the ways that God is working and what He's doing and the joy that He's bringing into people's lives. And when we can engage with that, we draw strength off of that. We enjoy that as well. The fuel that runs our lives is joy. As Christians, we have huge challenges out there, and joy is one of those things that provides the energy and the resources to engage with the world. You remember Nehemiah? He comes out of exile. He comes back to Jerusalem. The walls, the protective walls around the city are just flattened. The temple that has been the focus of worship has been destroyed. Everything is is in ruins. And Nehemiah has the challenge of going in and developing the protective wall again around the city and to to begin the work of establishing the the temple and to regain the focus of the the nation and the worship of of God. We find ourselves in a world with broken walls and the lack of a focus for our worship. We have a huge challenge to engage our world and to make a difference in it, to be the salt and light that it needs, and to help people understand the, uh, the challenges of, of worship and the importance of, of the true God. 
We need to have the resources to make that work. What did Nehemiah said? He said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. When I look at the challenge of protection and the challenge of redeveloping a, a heart for God within my people, I need the joy of the Lord. It's going to be the thing that empowers and energizes and motivates me to do this work. I can do it from duty, but the hearts of the people were giving out a few chapters before. Nehemiah needed to invigorate them and himself with a reminder that the joy of the Lord is their strength. We need that multiplication of the, the joy, and we need the strength of the joy of the Lord as we go forward to engage the, uh, the challenges of the, uh, of the days ahead. Let's switch now and talk about the, um, the issue of mourning, the benefits that come as we weep together, as we mourn and engage people in areas of, uh, of their suffering. There's a fascinating verse, a little passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that deals with the, the first issue, and that's that people in pain need our support. People in pain need someone to come alongside and to bear their burden with them. The Ecclesiastes passage goes, two are better than one, for it provides a good return on your investment. It's a good, it's a good return for your work. If you have two, you can do a, a better job than with one. And then he gives three illustrations of what that might look like. And the first is when a person falls down, they need someone to help them up. When they're cold at night, they need someone to keep them warm. And when they're being overpowered by an aggressor, they need someone there to protect them. The, um, those three images speak to the cause of many of the pains and sufferings that come our way. The source of that mourning and weeping in our lives can oftentimes be the mistakes that we made that have knocked us down, the things where we fell down. We made a bad business decision, and now <clears throat> our financial situation is in ruin. And sometimes it's those choices that don't necessarily, necessarily have ethical or moral consequences to them. We just made some mistakes, and we need someone to come alongside us and to encourage us. But oftentimes, the falling down has to do with moral and ethical decisions and choices that we have made. We have broken our vows. We have <clears throat> made some, some choices that have been destructive in our marriage or with our children. There are uh, consequences that we have to pay. We need someone to come alongside and say, wow, that was, that was not a good one. Uh, we're, we got a big problem here. But you know what? God is bigger than the mistakes that you can make. His grace is bigger than all of that. We can get through this. How can I help? I'm here for you. Let's figure out a plan. Let's go forward. Two are better than one because when somebody falls down, it's tough to get back on your feet by themselves. They need someone to give them some guidance and encouragement and support to lift them back up and to help them pass the mistakes that they have made. The second issue has to do with abandonment. Many times our pain is associated with broken relationships. We have uh, <clears throat> a marriage that has failed. We have children that have rebelled. We have things that are, are strained within 
family or work relationships. There are, uh, there are problems that have left, left us isolated. We have these moments when we're cold, when we're all alone, and there's no one to provide the warmth of human relationship. And, and the writer of Ecclesiastes said, hey, when someone is experiencing the pain of loneliness and abandonment and of brokenness and where there's no one around them, we need to come and engage them. We need to provide the warmth of friendship and the support of, of another human relationship so that they can, can sense that they're not in this by themselves. There's someone there to provide the, the encouragement and support that, that they desperately need. The third challenge that we have is when we're attacked. Sometimes it's circumstances that just overwhelm us, and sometimes it's an individual or a group that are coming after us and have a, a vendetta to, uh, to play out against us. They, uh, there is some way that we are feeling overwhelmed. Uh, there's an issue that we are being, uh, uh, being put upon in a way that we just can't handle. We are overmatched by the circumstances, and we feel vulnerable. We feel like we're, we're being overcome by the challenges of life. We need someone to come alongside and provide protection. We need someone that will be our ally, who will stand with us when the forces of, of the enemy come at us. So whether or not it's a, an issue of a mistake that we've made, or an abandonment issue that has come into our life, or an attack that is coming upon us, we need to look at the people around us, and we need to engage them. They need our support, and we need to be proactive and initiate the engagement so that we can help those who are uh, in need. Besides the issue of support and provision, is that at times when, uh, when we are in these moments of despair, when the dark clouds are there, we just want to feel better. We just want the pain to go away. We don't care what it takes, we just want to feel better, and so oftentimes we look for a quick fix that actually is very destructive. I was in uh, Warsaw, Poland a couple weeks ago, walking down the street, my little um, cafes, bars, restaurants, and things that were mainly for tourists, and there was a sign, uh, a chalk sign by one of the entrances to the little cafe, and it said, are you lonely? And underneath it said, we have alcohol. <sighs> Are you lonely? Do you have a problem? We can fix it. We can make it go away for a little while. We can provide the drugs. We can provide the alcohol. We can provide the pornography. We can provide the affair. We can provide whatever it might be to make you feel better for a little while. But that's awfully destructive. There's a powerful verse in... The book of Job, I think it's 3621, that says, Beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. We don't like the affliction. We don't like the pain. And so we turn to the quickest remedy, whatever it might be. And sometimes it's very socially acceptable. It's work. We just become workaholics. Sometimes we just turn up the music as loud as we can. Sometimes we just drive as fast as we can. There are lots of you know, kind of socially acceptable ways to spend money or do things that are okay, but are really designed just to make us feel better. 
They're not the gambling addictions, and they're not the sexual addictions, they're not the drug and alcohol addictions that are so evident, but they're also finding a solution for our affliction in something other than our relationship with God. Jesus, beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. These verses, or this verse, and these two imperatives are not directed to those who are rejoicing or those who are suffering. They're directed toward the rest of us who are kind of in the middle, who are not having the best of days, but not having the worst of days. We're just kind of getting by. We're doing all right. We're not distracted by the, the great joys of a, of a moment of uh, of celebration in our life, nor are we paralyzed by the moment of pain in our life. We're just kind of in the middle. And it says here that we are to be proactive. We are to take the initiative. We are to take these commands seriously and have our radar on looking and watching for who are the people that I need to engage with to en engage as they celebrate, to support them and let them know that this is special. And all the more with those who are struggling, those who are dealing with pain, that need someone to come alongside and provide the accountability, the encouragement to support them during the vulnerable time in, in their lives. We need to engage these people. We need to recognize that this command is not for them to reach out to us in their joy or sorrow, but for us to engage them during these, uh, these moments of life. So why is that so important? Why is all of this in there? Why do we have all of this theology that has to be right so that we can have our lives transformed, so that we can enter into community? Why is this such a big deal? Well, the Christian life is designed to be lived in community. We all have a relationship with God, but we all have a relationship with one another. To accelerate the growth of relationships, we need to, to uh, engage with one another on an emotional basis. That it uh, spurs on the development of relationships. If you look at studies of people who are trapped in elevators that have these shared moments of fear when they think their life is going to be ended, or people who are in the military that go into battle together and they are bonded for life with the people that have, have fought alongside them. Those are the negative, the fear and the, the, the pain issues of life. But shared emotional experiences can also be on the positive side. It's one of the joys of working in a camp ministry. We create a context where there's great joy and celebration. And we enter into people's lives when they're most susceptible when their emotions are on high alert. We need to engage people, and we need to engage one another at those moments so that we can enrich and deepen our relationships. That's where this is going. We need to have the confession of Romans 1 through 12. We need to have the transformation of our character. We also have to have the healthy community that comes with, uh, with going through the deep waters of pain and the wonderful mountaintops of, of joy. And as we experience the, the blessings and joy of celebration and rejoicing together and the pain and the excruciating moments of, uh, of, uh, of mourning to, uh, with one another, God uses those to, 
to hasten the depth and deepen the building of relationships within the body. That's what we're, that's what we're after. That's what we want to have happen. We want us to rejoice and mourn with one another so that we can enrich our own lives and deepen the relationships so that we are ready and have the, the firm foundation of a community that's healthy as we face the challenges of making a difference in our community for the cause of Christ. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be done. Father, we thank you that you have given us uh, seasons of grace when we're not in the midst of great celebration, nor are we facing tremendous pain. And Father, these moments give us the opportunity to engage others who are. Help us to multiply the blessings of, and joys of the lives that, uh, that you have given to others in their lives. And Father, help us to be sensitive and to be aware and to not be afraid of the awkwardness and to move into the lives of those who are hurting so that we can share those emotions and deepen our bonds of relationships that are critical to the body of Christ functioning uh, the way that you want so that we can make a difference for you and to uh, see uh, your word, your truth, and your relationships spread throughout this community. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.